When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. NASA's first Artemis mission to deep space and back has just come to a close with a splashdown of the uncrewed Orion spacecraft on Sunday off the California coast. It ended a nearly 26-day spaceflight around the moon that included close flybys, viewings of the Apollo landing sites, and tests of the Lockheed Martin-made capsule that could now potentially host astronauts as soon as 2024. Artemis 1 lifted off on November 16th when the Boeing-made space launch system became the most powerful rocket ever to fly. The lunar program picks up where, 50 years ago, Apollo left off. And it begs the question, why go back? Anything that impacted the moon billions of years ago is today right where it was billions of years ago. And so we could find large deposits of platinum group metals on the surface of the moon. And of course, that would be transformational, not just for commercial exploration, but it would also be transformational, um, really, for the balance of power on Earth if the wrong people were to uh, take advantage of that. That's just one reason. Jim Bridenstine was the NASA administrator tasked with rolling out Artemis during the Trump administration, setting the groundwork for the return of American astronauts to the lunar surface. He joins me on this episode to discuss the first mission, what comes next, and how it all speaks to a future moon market, one for which the scientific and yes, even economic, stakes couldn't be higher. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. So obviously, I'm a, a big fan of the Artemis program. It's, um, it, it was a creation of, of the last administration, and we worked really hard to make sure that it would be a program that continues into the next administration, and grateful to uh, the, the Biden administration for ensuring that it moved forward. Um, and this is a big milestone. This is really the first step towards getting to Mars. We need to learn how to live and work on another world for long periods of time. That's what the Artemis program is all about. This time when we go to the moon, we're going to stay. We're going to use the resources of the moon to live and work. Um, and then ultimately, we're going to take all of the knowledge that we gain and we're, we're going to go to Mars. Yeah. Um, just in terms of the liftoff, what we've seen uh, with the flybys and everything else over this uh, nearly 26-day mission, is it everything that you would have anticipated when you were involved in launching the program? Yes. Well, obviously, there were delays in the launch, as is the case on the launch of every rocket that ever existed uh, that did its first launch ever. Um, and of course, there were, there were some folks out there that might have been a bit critical uh, but here's the thing. Uh, it has all gone very, very well, uh, better than I think most people ever anticipated for not just the first launch of the most powerful rocket in history, but also a crew capsule that has more capability than any crew capsule in history. Um, and yes, it, it, it didn't just go to the moon, around the moon. It has done significant maneuvers. Um, it has flown deeper into space than any crew capsule in history. Uh, and and overwhelmingly, the folks I talk to that are at NASA um, are, are just uh, tickled with how, how well everything has gone. So yes, I think it has gone as well as it could have been expected. So as 
as the person who was administrator of NASA when the Artemis program was born, I guess just take us back through that recent history and as much as you can divulge the behind the scenes of how this came to be. Well, I think, um, you know, there was a time before I was the NASA administrator, I was on the, the science committee in the House of Representatives. And in those days, it was astonishing to me how polarizing space exploration with humans had become. It, it, was, it was bizarre that Republicans were for going to the moon and Democrats were for going to Mars. I never understood how that could become a partisan issue. Um, and so one of the first things I wanted to do when, when we got to NASA was make sure that everybody understood that they are not exclusive. The moon is the first step in getting to Mars. It's not moon or Mars, it's moon and Mars. And at the time we had a, a, a good bit of hardware that had already been developed going back to the second Bush administration, uh, George Herbert, or I'm sorry, George Walker Bush. We had the Constellation program, which developed a lot of the hardware. Uh, during the Obama administration, they were very clear that we're not going to go to the moon. We're going to go straight to Mars. There were there's a lot of concern about that. How, how do we get to Mars when we haven't been to the moon since 1972 with humans? Um, and and so the, the key was, you know, we need to make sure that we're going to the moon and Mars, that they're not exclusive. They are, in fact, additive towards each other. Um, and I will I will also say um that you know, once the program got initiated as the Artemis program, where we're going to the moon with all of America, everybody loves Apollo, fantastic, fantastic missions. But in those days, all of our astronauts uh, were white men. Um, and now we get to go to the moon with all of America. And our current astronaut corps is very diverse, highly qualified. The Artemis program is named after the twin sister of Apollo. She was in fact, the goddess of the moon. Um, and now we get to go to the moon with the first woman in history. Um, so all of these things, uh, you know, ending division uh, between moon or Mars and making sure that everybody understood that our program is very inclusive and diverse. All of these things resulted um, in, in, a, in a really an apolitical bipartisan program that everybody got behind. Um, and we're just really excited to see it, you know, finally come to fruition. Was it your idea to go back to the moon first and then sort of market that as a, and push that as a, as a touchstone to, to further space exploration of Mars and beyond? You know, I, I will absolutely tell you it was not my idea. There, people have been advocating for the moon since the end of the Apollo program. There is so much work left to do on the moon, so much exploring and discovery and science that's to be had. Um, there, there has been a lot of frustration inside NASA really since 1972. Um, Shannon Walker, who's one of our astronauts, she very frequently says that the moon has always been, since she's been an astronaut, even since she had the desire to be an astronaut, the moon has always been 10 years away. Um, and, you know, every, every year it's, it's 10 years away. And of course, it's this never ending, you know, I, I guess, horizon that you can never achieve. But we're there. We are there now. We have the hardware. We have the capability. We need to we need to build the human landing system. That's not going to be easy. We need to build the gateway, which uh, is a space station that will be in orbit around the moon. These are elements that still need to be developed. Um, but our capabilities are there, um, and and it's going to happen. Um, so we're we're all very very excited about it. But no, I I cannot take credit for the moon being my idea. Look, by the time I became the NASA administrator. 
the president, uh, Donald Trump at the time, had already signed Space Policy Directive 1, which gave us the order to go back to the moon with commercial partners, with international partners, um, to in fact um, use it as a stepping stone to get to Mars. Um, all of these things were, were already established before I even got to NASA. Got it. Where did the name come from? It's such a good name. Yeah, so this this was, um, we have had missions in the past called Artemis that, um, that went to the moon. Uh, it hasn't been used really since the 1990s by any NASA mission. Um, but, you know, the, the idea was the, the vice president, Vice President Pence announced down in, in, in Huntsville, Alabama, he announced that we're going to go to the moon and it, we're going to take the first woman to the moon. And of course, uh, when we got that direction, that announcement, and we're going to do it, and he said we're going to do it by 2024, um, which meant that we had a lot of work ahead of us, not just technologically, but to increase NASA's budgets, which we were able to achieve. Um, and in those days, um, the question was, what do we call the program? Well, it just so happens that Apollo <laughs> had a twin sister, um, and we all love the Apollo program, but Apollo's twin sister in Greek mythology was in fact the goddess of the moon, um, and so I, I thought it was a I thought it was a perfect name. Um, as soon as we realized that, uh, the very next press conference that we had, which was I think the next day, uh, we made it very clear to the public that we're going to call the program Artemis. So um, I it it was really just a, a a decision made in the administrator's suite, um, but I think it was perfect given the history and the future. You mentioned the moon lander, the lunar lander. Uh, we know SpaceX got the first contract to develop one. We know that maybe other competitors are now looking to uh, com looking to come in and, and uh, build and develop and pitch their own landers as well. Um, budget budgeting was an issue in, in that contracting process, at least at least initially in the last couple of years. Do you feel like after Artemis one? Budgeting becomes less of an issue because now we've seen a successful first mission, albeit without astronauts on board. I think it definitely becomes easier. It, but I'm not going to say it, it. It's not. It's not. It will never go away as an issue. There will always be, you know, budgets that have to be managed and everything else. But I, I, I will, I will tell you the skepticism about the the. I think the program is is largely going to be retired. People are going to understand that the United States can still do stunning achievements. Um, and that that's what this is. I, I will also say that the Orion crew capsule with the European service module, it was not designed to go to the surface of the moon. In those days when that hardware was initially developed, there was no plan to go to the moon. So we needed to have a capability. We still need to have a capability to increase what we call Delta V, which is the amount of energy available. Um, and, and so we're going to do that with building what's what's called the gateway, which is a space station in orbit around the moon and aggregating at the gateway a landing system that can go down to the surface of the moon and come back up to the gateway where our astronauts can come home again. Um, but, but the idea was, and this is so important, the idea was we did not want to create another government-purchased, government-owned, government-operated spacecraft. We wanted to make sure that we were enabling commercial industry um, to, to do this. And of course, the purpose of commercial industry, when you think about space, is we want our, our commercial providers to go get customers that are not NASA or not even the government at all. We want them to go get commercial customers. And we need to have numerous providers that are competing against each other 
on cost and innovation and safety, ultimately to drive down costs and increase access to space. So all of these things were important. They've been proven out in low Earth orbit. When you think about the International Space Station, how we resupply it now, we resupply it with commercial resupply. We, we take crew to the International Space Station with commercial crew. The, the next generation space station in low Earth orbit is gonna be multiple space stations with an S, um, and they're all gonna be commercially owned and operated, and they're gonna be doing things for customers that are not the government. So that's important to recognize. And the goal here is to develop commercial capabilities at the moon, again, so that the government can be one customer of many and those commercial companies are competing against each other on cost and innovation, ultimately providing more access to the moon and every part of the moon, more access than ever before. So I have two questions off of that. The first is given the fact that it does represent this public private partnership and expansion of this business model, essentially that we're talking about uh, here and what we've seen play out with commercial crew and the resupply missions that you just mentioned that, to the ISS. Does that mean, and I realize that there are contracts in place for the next several missions, but does that mean potentially that at one point, at some point, you see those government owned rockets and capsules like the SLS, like Orion, ultimately retired? Well, they, they might not be retired. They might be used for a different purpose. Um, you know, there, there could be other needs that the government finds. So the answer is, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't, I can't see the future. What I will tell you is what government's objectives should be. The government's objective should be to do things for which there's not yet a commercial marketplace, retire the risk, and then work really hard to make sure that the commercial market develops. Um, and then the government needs to step back and say, okay, commercial, you have that. We're going to go do something for which there's not yet a commercial marketplace. And we're seeing that right now in low Earth orbit. I mean, space markets are becoming very, very robust in low Earth orbit. And now we want to extend that to cislunar space, to the surface of the moon, and even beyond. So right now, what the government is doing is the government is saying, look, uh, we're going to go to the moon and, and we're going to, as much as possible, use commercial capability with the intent of eventually stepping back and having the government do something else for which there's not yet a capability. I will also say, when we think about the gateway, think of it as a space station in orbit around the moon. It's going to be an open architecture system. So the basically all commercial companies, even international companies, uh, countries, will be able to have access to the gateway and of course, therefore access to the surface of the moon through the gateway. And, and what does that mean? That means the way we do um, rendezvous and docking, the way we do um, environmental control and life support systems, the way we do data and communications and avionics, all of these things are gonna be published, made available to the public. Um, and then private companies are gonna be able to, to get access to that information and build systems that are compatible with the gateway. So what we're trying to do as a government is create the infrastructure that ultimately commercial companies can utilize and benefit from. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of what we did with semiconductors. Yes. You know, that that is like, that is the template, the case study, and it goes back however many, whatever, 60, 70 years, but this is kind of what this reminds me of. And it, um, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things I hear it compared to a lot, and I think it's a good comparison is that you know, there, there are people, um, once the iPhone got created and everybody was connected with, you know, some kind of mobile device, all of a sudden applications started being developed that nobody had ever even dreamed of before. 
And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create the architecture so that applications can be utilized that we're, we're not even thinking of right now. Which brings me to my second question. And that is, are we already starting to see a moon market, a moon economy, a lunar economy build out uh, on the heels of, of Artemis so far? Well, I, I think so. Um, what what we're seeing, obviously, because we decided to go to the moon, the surface of the moon with the lander commercially, we're seeing commercial companies step up, raise private capital, and develop capability to go to the surface of the moon. Like you said, SpaceX got the first contract. There will now be a, a second commercial lander that the government is going to eventually um, put out an RFP and 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 buy a system uh, for. But again, the goal here is for the government to buy. Uh, a service. Um, and, and then those companies can go get customers that are not NASA. Um, so you think about what those markets might be. Um, there's There are hundreds of millions of tons of water ice on the South Pole of the Moon and a lot on the North Pole of the Moon. That water ice represents um, air to breathe. It represents water. To, so it's H2O. Oxygen, of course, is air to breathe. You know, H2O is water to drink and hydrogen is, is fuel, as a matter of fact. So all of this is available on the South Pole of the Moon in quantities that are going to be uh, transformational, um, and so we need to we need to benefit from that. We need to, to to utilize that, and of course, NASA is not the only organization that can benefit from that. There's a lot of uh, things that can be done in cislunar space utilizing the water ice. We we think about, you know, we talk about rare earth metals. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, rare earth metals are not earth metals at all. They're asteroid impacts from billions of years ago. The challenge with the earth is we've got this very robust atmosphere. We've got a hydrosphere that is constantly changing. A, 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 we've got a very active geology. Um, so all of these things make it very difficult to get asteroids to the surface of the earth. And when they're here, they're not where they used to be billions of years ago. Well, the moon has no atmosphere. It has no active geology or active hydrosphere. So anything that impacted the moon billions of years ago is today right where it was billions of years ago. And so we could find large deposits of platinum group metals on the surface of the moon. And of course, that would be transformational, not just for commercial exploration, but it would also be transformational um, really for the balance of power on Earth if the wrong people were to uh, take advantage of that. Which, of course, leads me to who are the wrong people potentially <laughs> on Earth. And what does that mean in terms of great power competitions on Earth translating to the moon? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, as, as far as the wrong people, here's what I will say. The United States is not the wrong people. We are the right people. And we need to go and make sure that when we go to the moon, our values are the values that go forward to the moon. Um, a, a lot of people suggest that um, resources for the moon um, cannot, cannot be owned by the private sector. Um, that, that is not that there's that is not the history that is not the tradition that is not the precedent that has been set here on earth uh, you look at the oceans you you know a, a nation cannot own the ocean yet if a private company applies its own resources its own investment its own sweat if a private company or a private individual goes and extracts tuna from the ocean that private company gets to own the tuna from the ocean uh, if a private company extracts energy from the ocean, that doesn't mean that they own the ocean. It just means that they own the energy from their own investment, their own sweat that they put into extracting that energy. Well, the moon is the same. The, uh, on the surface of the moon, 
if you're extracting water ice or if you're extracting maybe platinum group metals that you don't own the moon, but if you apply your own resources to achieve those goals of, 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 of attaining those resources, then you should absolutely be able to own those resources. So those are the values that, that we think are important. The same values that we have internationally here on earth need to be applied to the moon and asteroids and other celestial bodies. And of course, Artemis is a first step towards all of that. It absolutely is. And just like there's water on the moon, there's also, you know, when I was at, when I was at NASA, we, we discovered um, that there's liquid water under the surface of Mars as well. In fact, uh, you know, right, right now we've got a rover that is wandering around a river delta on Mars. Of course, that river delta is now dry. Um, but here's what we know. We know <laughs> just the, the, the years I was at NASA, we discovered not only liquid water 12 kilometers under the surface, we also discovered that there are methane cycles of Mars. Methane cycles matching the seasons of Mars. What, what does that mean? The probability of finding life actually just went up. And what do we know about liquid water here on Earth? Wherever it exists, there's life. So now we know on Mars, there's not only liquid water, but there's methane cycles. There's methane cycles that match the seasons of Mars. We, we also now know that complex organic compounds are spread all over the surface of Mars. Those are the building blocks for life. They don't exist on the moon at all, nowhere, but they're all over Mars. My, my point is, there is a real chance um, that whoever gets to Mars first with humans may very well discover that life either was or may even still be on Mars. I'm not talking about bunny rabbits or anything like that. I'm talking about you know, single-celled organisms that would be under the surface of Mars where they're protected from the radiation of deep space. I will also say, and this is so important as well, be because of spirit and opportunity and curiosity, um, we made discoveries that you know, Mars was covered, its northern hemisphere was two-thirds covered in ocean, that, that Mars at, at one time had a thick atmosphere and a magnetosphere that protected it from the radiation of deep space. In other words, Mars, billions of years ago, was habitable. I'm not saying it was inhabited, but it was habitable. And even today, we're making discoveries that say, hey, it, it, it very well may be, we don't know, we can't say for sure, but it, there very well may be life there even today um, if we spend the time to go look for it. So when that happens, Morgan, when that happens, it will forever add chapters to history books and science books. And when it happens, it needs to be done by the United States of America and our partners and allies. That's who needs to make those achievements. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.